and welcome to the first of a three-part podcast on historical memory and politics. I'm Olga Kuzmina, a graduate student at the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University. I'll be taking you behind the scenes of a conference held at Harvard on August 28th and 29th, 2018, entitled Circulating Across Europe, Transgressive Narratives About the Past. This event brought together scholars from the United States and Europe to discuss the ways in which narratives about the past shape our politics and society in the present day, and how present-day governments and societies try to reshape the past to their own liking. The studies presented at the conference spanned a wide range of disciplines and geographic areas, but they converge around three themes which we'll explore in this podcast. The second and third parts will address the discursive and societal aspects of historical memory. In the first episode, we'll look at the ways in which states have used legislation to regulate discussions about the past and the impact this has on democracy. Special thanks to my colleague Daniel Manns, a senior at Harvard College, for conducting the interviews you'll hear on the show. First, we'll hear a welcome note from the organizers of the conference, Felix Kravatsek and George Soroka, who met through their work on memory politics. It's also a very warm welcome from my side, and I'm very pleased to welcome you to this workshop that brings together a strand of research which George Soroka and myself have been pursuing for a number of years now independently, and kind of this workshop is an opportunity to broaden it thematically and also to sync our research interests more. Um, so we met a little bit more than a year ago when I was a research fellow at the Center for European Studies here at Harvard. And George has been working on the topic of memory and politics from a perspective kind of, of international relations and foreign policy with a focus on Eastern Europe, whereas I've been working on it primarily from a theoretical perspective on entangled memory in the context of European integration. And we both thought that there are important synergies here that one ought to develop further and therefore of the idea of a workshop emerged um, and our research interests span east and western europe and this is also a dialogue that we want to establish throughout the conference and obviously as i already alluded to this topic is of present day relevance and this present day relevance really has only increased whilst we prepared all for the workshop when we were reading your papers many stated kind of when submitting them in their emails or even in their papers that their work has become a moving target over the last year or so and I can think kind of, of hardly any other time where it was so easy to agree that we are at a critical juncture right now in kind of concerning the recall of the past. And I think this juncture is particularly evident in the fact that the previously consensual never again norm of the cosmopolitan memory of remembering kind of, is about to disappear, or at least it's no longer unchallenged. And many of you use this phrase of kind of the never again, the cosmopolitan memory. Um, but to put it in different words, what it refers to is obviously the emphasis on universal victimhood, on shared suffering, which is being questioned, which is being questioned and which seems no longer that pertinent to describe contemporary processes of remembering. And this is particularly clear through the enthusiastic appraisal of nostalgic nationalism, um, kind of which as a result means that the commemoration of guilt is less and less the norm. What this means going forward for societies at large is very hard to say, but I think we can all claim that this particular strand of research is in need of being developed further, in particular also from social scientists. Um, and maybe what we see at the moment, if we look at it from the perspective of narratives of the past, is less a crisis of democracy, but a crisis of nationalism, or to be more precise, of post-nationalism. So one example of this problematic discourse is events today in Russia with the question of what to do politically with the legacy of the 1917 revolution. 
On the one hand, the revolution created the state that today's Russia sees itself as being in continuity with. And on the other hand, this memory encourages popular resistance to the current regime, which is seen by some as still being too closely linked to the Soviet past. The ambivalence with which the current regime has treated the uh, political memory of the revolution, embracing its commemoration rather belatedly, exemplifies how history has become politics in Russia in the 21st century. But this isn't just a phenomenon taking place across Russia. It isn't a phenomenon just taking place across Europe. Just this past weekend, protesters clashed at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill a few days after students toppled Silent Sam, a bronze statue commemorating Confederate soldiers. The issue here is the politicization of two conflicting historical narratives. One that sees the statue as a painful and unacceptable reminder of racism and oppression in this country, and another that views the presence of the statue as a manifestation of their own history and therefore sees its removal as a negation of this identity. We began by asking participants how they became interested in memory studies. Their responses revealed a variety of paths. Some were studying a region or country with a troubled past, while others were inspired by historical debates taking place closer to home. Our first speaker, Eric Heinze, is Professor of Law and Humanities at Queen Mary University of London. Having worked for years in human rights law, he became interested in memory politics after observing what he says is a fatally flawed understanding in the field, the idea that free speech is part of human rights. I think, in fact, that, human, that free speech is the precondition, the necessary prior condition for any human rights for any system of human rights or of human rights law. <clears throat> I think we have to draw a fundamental distinction between human goods and human rights. Human goods, again, having a fair trial, having enough to eat, um, not being tortured. You don't need free speech for any of those. Uh, well, of course, speech is part of a trial, but uh, uh, incidentally, right? Um, for any of those, uh, as goods, free speech is not any more of an essential component than any number of other interests, right? Uh, of course, you need to eat in order to have all of those. But there's an important distinction which is constantly overlooked between human goods and human rights. My view is that what makes fundamental human goods into fundamental human rights is the ability to vindicate them within public discourse, i.e. free speech. In other words, free speech is not more important than food or water as a good, but it is more important for a system of rights. And this is what led me into law and historical memory. In Soviet Russia, where our second speaker began his studies, the introduction of free speech during Gorbachev's reforms set off an explosion of debates about the past. This led Nikolai Koposov, currently a visiting professor at Emory University, to study memory laws and the evolution of modern historical consciousness in Europe. I have always been interested in how representations of the past function in our societies. And when I was a little older than you are now, and it was still under the Soviets in then Leningrad state, I was just dreaming about kind of creating a center of, perhaps more than broader than history of 
exercise of historical consciousness, studying of historical consciousness, stuff, stuff like that, starting from the most remote times up nowadays. So this kind of broad historiographical slash historical consciousness interests were, for some reasons, very typical of me. Maybe I always thought that uh, we should not be taking our profession as something which goes naturally on its own. Uh, the idea that deconstructing some of our critical approaching, some of our habits of thinking, uh, professional culture, whatever, would be a good thing to do. At that time, of course, in Russia, no sociology of knowledge, Western-style sociology of knowledge, very little was available, so it was a kind of homemade sociology of knowledge, but that was somehow an important background for me. Then, uh, perestroika, Mr. Gorbachev. And of course, battles over the past were essential to the process of uh, democratization of Russian society in the late 1980s and early 1990s. And my first real entry into the field of memory studies was uh, a sociological survey. Sociology was really a new science there in Russia. We were all fascinated with uh, various. Uh, public opinion polls, whatever, and my uh, wife and myself, she was brought up as an ancient Greek historian. I was trained as a medieval Italian modernist, but still we decided to make what happened to be the first public opinion survey in Russian issues of history. And it was in Leningrad in, 19, in May 1990. Uh, and until now, I think uh, it's a very usable source of information about what people used to think then about Soviet history. For Stephanie Golub, professor of political science at City University of New York, it was a government crime in Mexico that first brought her to memory studies. Um, I actually was studying memory as an undergraduate without knowing it. I was a Latin American studies major. And my senior thesis was based on a book by Elena Poniatowska, which is called La Noche de Tlatelolco, um, which is otherwise was translated as Massacre in Mexico. And it was a pastiche um, oral history with press clippings, a kind of a multi, I mean, it probably would have been you know, much more interactive if it had been done in the 21st century. But she's a Mexican novelist, and she was writing about the, um, the student movement of 1968 in Mexico and the night of 2nd of October, when a, um, uh, a, a rally was attacked by the police and then the government whitewashed it. And I wrote my thesis on um, the use of, of, of history as a form of political control in Mexico, because it was a single party system. I was a Latin American studies major. I was not in political science or history or anywhere else. So I was really just basically doing my own thing in a pretty undisciplined way. Um, and uh, I was uh, really getting at this, this question. So it wasn't memory per se, but it was the idea of the fact that, that governments and public actors will mobilize history for their own political purposes, but also that there will be groups that would lose political power as the student movement did, as the government, uh, uh, the, the government took, took uh, on the one hand tried to erase what happened, but also tried to co-opt student leaders so try to appropriate their narratives. With so many issues facing the world today, from poverty to climate change to immigration, why should we worry about the past? How much does history really matter to people on a daily basis when other concerns like economic security are far more important? 
Eric Heinze says that even if we don't see it, our sense of the past is at the very heart of who we are. There is a symbolism of history which is so big and powerful that it becomes tied up in people's very sense of self-knowledge, of self-worth, right? That's why people, many of whom I suspect have very little money, will spend all sorts of time arguing about this American Civil War, for example, uh, arguing about the status of slavery, uh, arguing about whether it was a war of northern aggression, whether it was right, whether it was good, and so forth, uh, because they're talking about their own identities. And, uh, and the same is true in Poland and Russia and Germany and France and everywhere else. In the West, the approach to memory has changed to meet new political goals. Nikolai Kaposov sees a shift from protecting victims to a new nationalization of historical narratives that's reflected in the laws that are now being adopted by some states. Kind of balance gradually shifted from a kind of humanistically oriented, democratically oriented politics or memory based on the notions of state repentance for the crimes of the past and the notion of uh, just kind of victim-centered uh, conception of historical consciousness. This emphasis began gradually shifting to something else, uh, self-victimization of uh, particularistic communities and um, obvious decay of universal democratic values. In this moment it became clear for people like Nora in France, of course, before then, uh, uh, to myself, uh, that memory laws as an institution had perhaps far more, brought more risks than advantages. But in other places, law works like an invisible hand to keep the memory of victims alive. Eric Heinze says that in Germany, an embrace of critical history has gone much farther than any ban on hate speech ever could towards this end. Law is most powerful when you don't see it, right? When it's, uh, again, let's take Germany. The historical consciousness of World War II, of Nazism, of the Holocaust in Germany, is not pr particularly shaped by these Holocaust denial laws, right? Again, they, they come up every now and then. There's some, some sort of high-profile state prosecution. It gets some media attention. What really shapes Germans' everyday consciousness is what's being taught in schools, is what's being shown on the media. Right? Uh, Germany has a much more extensive network of state television, which is very good on the Holocaust, on, 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 on Nazism. You know, there's constantly, and for decades now, there's been, you know, there's constantly, uh, you know, a very high quality critical history shown to the population. You know, in schools, this is taken very seriously. You know, many schools organize school trips to Auschwitz or to one of the other camps, right? And then there's a, you know, there's a guided tour. It's very educational, right? Law is behind all of that. That's much more powerful than some criminal statute punishing people for Holocaust denial. One country that loomed large at the conference is, not surprisingly, Russia. In 2014, President Vladimir Putin signed off on a law that makes it a crime to deny Nazi crimes or distort the Soviet Union's role in World War II. Critics say that in practice, this amounts to a ban on any criticisms of the Soviet Red Army or of Stalin. According to Nikolai Kaposov, the Russian law is the worst kind of memory law, one that protects not the victim, but the perpetrator, in this case, the Soviet state. 
So in Russia, of course, in Putin's Russia, the cult of the Second World War, the victory over Nazism, serves the goal of promoting nationalistic narrative of a strong state, and Stalin is the main symbol of this strong state, simply. Uh, many Russians would not agree to glorify Stalin, a minority, but an important minority, and that is why Putin and his group came up with the idea that, well, we'll glorify Stalin and the strong state, the strong Russian state, through glorifying the Second World War, the Russian victory in the Second World War. So this is the worst uh, possible politics of memory uh, in Europe, I'm aware of, and uh, it would be just equivalent, almost equivalent to saying that well, Hitler was not so bad, uh, almost equivalent, not exactly equivalent. And oh, the Russian memory law adopted in 2014 uh, does precisely that, it gives kind of legal protection to the official Russian narrative of the Second World War slash Stalinism. Uh, once again, speaking about kind of specificity of my approach, I would say that alongside the emphasis on political relevance of memory laws, I also try to understand uh, laws criminalizing statements about the past as a source for studying the present-day historical consciousness. Those laws are all very recent. Uh, the first such bans came into being in the 1980s, basically. And for a historian, the fact that there was something was absent 30 years ago and now it's plenty of that. 27 European countries have criminalized certain statements about the past. It's, of course, an indication that something has changed in our perception of the past. But Kaposov underlines that Russia is not the only country to adopt memory laws that protect the nation and its government from blame. A more extreme case exists in Turkey, where a 2008 amendment to the country's penal code makes it a crime to insult the Turkish nation, and effectively bans discussion of crimes committed by the Ottoman Empire. Less extreme cases can be found among the younger democracies of Central and Eastern Europe. For example, in January 2018, Poland adopted a law, which has since been amended, that made it a crime to accuse the Polish nation of complicity in the Holocaust. Russia is an extreme case here, but it's not the only extreme case. Similar memory laws exist in Turkey. Well, in Turkey it's not exactly a memory law, it's Article 301 of the Turkish Penal Code, which forbids insults to Turkish state, but in fact it is used to prohibit the ban uh, accusations of the Ottoman Empire of having committed the genocide of the Armenians. Similar laws exist in a number of uh, East European countries. They are less extreme in uh, Hungary, in the Czech Republic, in Poland, in Lithuania, in Latvia, but they uh, also protect national narratives, na national narratives of those countries by uh, accusing of all kinds of crimes against humanity, either Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union. None of those countries uh, is really interested in uh, exploring and then perhaps somehow prohibiting uh, the denial of crimes committed by the representatives of those nations. 
uh, is completely uh, uh, marginalized. While some countries in Europe have increasingly politicized the past, others steer clear of painful memories to avoid political conflict. Stephanie Golub says that Spain has resisted facing the legacy of its civil war in the dictatorship of Francisco Franco, during which hundreds of thousands of Spaniards were killed. According to her, this makes Spain an exception that proves the rule. I use the word, the term exceptional because it's a self-reference that there are, that the the sort of the dominant or the hegemonic view of, of, uh, of Spanish memory politics that's been driven by the center right, but uh, with, a, with a great buy and by a large majority of, of in, uh, as we understand it in Spain, are, are, is the idea that, that Spain had made its transition, there, are no court, there were no uh, trials, and that's the way we like it. That's, you know, we don't want to touch the past. Um, and that because we've been, because Spain has been, um, objectively speaking, a success story in terms of its economy, in terms of its uh, the modernization of its society, um, the, uh, the really the, the, the standards of living, um, fantastic trains, you ever take the Ave, the, 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 the high-speed rail, the Obama administration went to Spain to study high-speed rail. Uh, Spain has been a, uh, a pioneer in, um, in, uh, uh, in the expansion of rights. We've seen um, uh, legal gay marriage in Spain. Uh, we've also seen uh, climate change uh, there, uh, although Spain now has had some uh, some, set, some setbacks, uh, they did start to uh, work very hard to be part of renewable energy. So in a lot of ways, Spain views itself as, as a sense of, of we are, memory politics is not what makes us European. What makes us European was signing that single European Act in 1995, joining the single currency and, and opening our borders and opening our society and the sense of being European standards all over Europe, Europe coming to Spain for the 92 Olympics, for the, for the, for the, uh, for the expo, for, for world pride last year, the idea that Spain is open to Europe and, and open commercially, you, you drive through the roads in Spain that were built with European Union money, but, but a real sense that, that Spain has benefited from Europe, and I think there's been kind of a, a wall off of the, the memory policy is not considered to be something that makes Spain European, but the mem memorialista movement is changing that narrative, is trying to change the narrative, is trying to say no, in order to be fully European, Spain really needs to embrace this post-Holocaust, post-World War II, liberal universalist sense, victim-oriented state uh, accepting its obligation to investigate and to and to uh, and to compensate and to guarantee non-repetition. According to Golub, memory politics are closely tied to a country's openness to democratization and integration into Europe. Countries that no longer see a benefit to integration have increasingly turned their history inwards, focusing on the plight of their nation within the broader European story. Now we have this. You know the rise of um, of uh, this kind of uh, of nationalism and uh, that is uh, rising, that is anti-integrationist, right? That views democracy not being advanced by European integration, as opposed to the Spanish narrative, which is democratic transition through integration. The narrative of Eastern European countries, right? And after post eighty nine, they didn't just want it to 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 overthrow communism. They wanted into the European Union. They wanted into NATO. They were all that was part. The institutional framework was part of what was going to solidify their transitions. But that's not the narrative now. But Spain still embraces that on some level, right? Except that the, the debate is a, it's a little bit in a separate place. But I believe that Spain is in the heart of Europe having this debate about what it means to be Europe, what it means to be democratic in a democratic Europe. 
Eric Heinze, the law professor, says that a democratic approach to memory comes down to having an open debate about the past. Any law that restricts freedom of speech, he says, is also restricting democracy. What's germane to democratic society is uh, unrestricted opportunities for self-criticism. And I see self-criticism of the state. In other words, this, uh, unrestricted opportunities uh, available to all citizens to criticize their state, to bring the state down a path of self-criticism or to invite it down that path. Um, uh, uh, um, any restriction on that possibility is a diminution of democracy. And that's why uh, Poland, Russia, right, they are very far from being democracies because they hold so heavily clamped clamp down uh, and again, some risks in some American states as well, right? Uh, uh, right. As soon as you're at risk for um, uh, challenging anything about a government, anything about a state, including its history, and history can be what happened yesterday as well as what happened 100 years ago, uh, that corresponds to a diminution of democratic culture. As Heinze notes, even democratic societies can be tempted to regulate discussions about history. Stephanie Golub says that we should always look at a state's behavior in broader context and not judge too harsh. I think it's important for, uh, for young people to remember that in the 1950s in the United States, there was the House Un-American Activities Committee that had a very broad brush defined what it meant to be American or un-American. And it's one thing for us to have that as, a, as an open public debate. It's another thing for a government and government officials to decide that. So that's why I think that memory studies are important because we, have, we should understand not only within our own political context, but having this broad comparative lens allows us to see that this is a human, something human. Thanks for listening to episode one of our three-part podcast on memory politics. I'm Olga Kuzmina, and I hope you'll join me for part two, where a new group of scholars will discuss the ways in which history is used in modern political discourse. Till next time.